0: Welcome back to the podcast. I am Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love talking with intentional performers, people that are consciously making decisions and actions and coming up with tools and techniques to help them perform specifically under pressure. And today we get to go deep with Rebecca Scritchfield. Uh, Rebecca's a dietitian, so she works with athletes, but she also works with everyday human beings who are just trying to maximize their health through Uh, What they consume and what they put into their body it's interesting that Rebecca is in the business of diet when she doesn't actually believe in dieting so Rebecca will talk a lot today about how she uses mindfulness and positive psychology to help people realize. What they are putting into their body and how they are looking at eating and uh, fueling their body, not just for performance, but for life. Uh, Rebecca wrote a great book called Body Kindness, which we're going to get into a little bit. And she really uses this concept of body kindness throughout her practice and this notion of not shaming your body and listening to your body and being kind to your body and treating your body the way that your body wants to be treated. Uh, So there's all kinds of analogies and great nuggets and themes that we're going to get into today in our conversation. Rebecca also is an athlete and she's hesitant to admit that or say that she's an athlete but she definitely is so she'll talk about her experience running marathons, running ultra marathons And I think you'll find out pretty quickly that Rebecca is a high-energy person. She is somebody who loves to do well. She likes to work hard. uh, But she's also extremely conscientious when it comes to the human body. And she's pretty critical of how we have set things up specifically in our society and how we look at diet and nutrition in our society and how we just look at it from the sense of what we look like rather than fueling our body for not just performance, but as I mentioned earlier, for life. So Rebecca's a positive person. You're going to love her energy, uh, but she's also extremely well-read. So she would list off books throughout our conversation and concepts and ideas And really, Rebecca, for all intents and purposes, is a psychologist. She takes on this role of getting into a person's psychology. So she really is the perfect guest for this podcast because she gets into a lot of the, the concepts that I like talking about with my guests. Uh, Also, uh, feel free to check Rebecca out on Instagram and Twitter and social media. She's heavily active there. Uh, You can check out her handle, at Rebecca Scritchfield, which we'll also put in the show notes. And also, Body Kindness is another way to find her on social media. And that just leads us to a reminder, uh, if you could uh follow us um if you can subscribe to the podcast and you'll just get these podcasts directly to your cell phone Uh, i know i subscribe to a number of podcasts and enjoy listening to them so get on there subscribe to the podcast also if you could share this episode on facebook twitter instagram linkedin wherever it is at your social uh we would really be grateful for that uh as we've mentioned in the past we are starting to make some intentional shifts Uh, with the podcast and really trying to get this to be as professional as possible. So um, one of the ways we do that is by sharing it and and really getting it out there to the masses. So anything you can do to help us, uh, we will really be grateful for that. So without further ado, I present to you, Rebecca Scritchfield. Rebecca, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're doing this out of your office. (laughs) Um, It's a cool office we met before. Uh, It's in Washington, D.C., um but it 's its own little seemingly quiet oasis, uh, so i 'm excited to be here. Wait
1: till the kids come home
0: <laughs> so it's funny you say that because I had a home office for five years, uh-huh. and it changed exactly when my first my first child was born. i said i don 't think i can I can work from home anymore, so maybe i 'll we'll talk about how you manage that. Uh, dynamic because that was right then I'm like all right time to pay for an office the whole office <laughs> isn't gonna work anymore um but what I'd love to do with you is just find out a little bit more about your story so I don't know much about you sure. um where did you grow up what was life like for you as a kid
1: oh <laughs> we're going deep early on <laughs> um so I was born in northeast Ohio a suburb of Youngstown Ohio called Austintown and um I lived there until I went off to college um I went to school in Michigan. It was a liberal arts school called Albion, and there I studied chemistry and math.
0: Time out. (laughs) So whenever someone says they study chemistry and math, I have to dive a little deeper. (laughs) What about chemistry? What about math were you interested in?
1: Oh, geez. Um, Well, I don't know that... I ended up getting into the childhood thing, which is after I ruled out careers at writing Shamu at SeaWorld and working at McDonald's, I was like, well, I just want to help people. So I was thinking the pre-med track, and then like one of my drunk college roommates burned her hand on the stove, and when I had to take her to this shady hospital in the middle of the night, I was like, I don't think I want to work in a hospital, but I still want to help people, and I was... Pretty much a rising senior with a degree in chemistry, um, and yeah, math was just one of those things that I was like, I just couldn't say no. And then I got to a class where I was like, okay, this is really hard. I'm going to say no. So I, um, I ended up with a minor, a minor in math. Was the, the class that took me out was uh, differential equations. I didn't go past that
0: one. So. It's funny you say that because <laughs> for me, I was definitely never going to be the math and science guy. Uh, you know, never going to be confused for that, but. <laughs> Uh, I remember I got to like statistics, which is like the first math class. So like, like you tapped out. I I I remember being in statistics and being surrounded by people, and they're like, "This class is so easy," and I'm like, "Really? (laughs) I can't do it." Um, So I knew right then and there, like uh, arts and sciences was going to be my my path. But Mm -hmm. I also always tell people I was really good at staying in the moment when I was in college, so I wasn't. really, uh, focused or inclined or had a good, had good insight into what I was going to do. But, um, let's go back a little bit more. Sure. So, uh, growing up in Ohio, yeah. I mean, I know of Youngstown, so yeah. I'm imagining, is it, uh, rural? Is it a, suburb, a suburban, area of Youngstown? Um, um, I would,
1: I would classify it as, I guess, suburban slash rural, Um, and I really didn't realize that until after I moved to DC but yeah when I go home you still see the corn stands when it's you know corn season and you can get your farm fresh produce from the neighbors and that but um, but yeah it's you know the thing about my area Northeast Ohio is people are really hard workers I feel like they work hard and they love hard But they're also, it's an area that's really down on its luck right now. So especially, um, I'm sad to hear about um, the drug problems in the area. So it wasn't like that when I was growing up. I have a lot of positive memories, um, even though we, um, you know, I mean, we were lucky we had a house that we were making payments on. We had a roof over our head, but we certainly were... Um, We're not privileged. We, you know, we're making ends meet. I have memories of helping my parents decide what bills they were going to pay, you know, because we couldn't always pay our bills every month. And and that played into our access to food and vacations and all these things that, um, you know, I guess I didn't really notice because I didn't know anything different. Um, but I now, currently, what I see when I go back and visit, it, it's struggling for jobs, and also um, I think you know these sort of bad—I um, guess there are no good drugs, so bad drugs—but like that that are um, are kind of taken over the area. So I I really hope I'm going to be going home. Um, and visiting family again soon and whenever I go I just really hope to see the community um doing better uh but um you know I for the most part had a good childhood and one of my fondest memories is going to Berlin Lake which is um this my grandparents had this like trailer kind of right on the water and we would you know um grill hot dogs and hamburgers and eat s'mores by the fire pit and just play and it, so it wasn't it was like you didn't need much to feel happy and to feel um you know like you had enough Um, But then when I got into college and was kind of thrust into everyone was driving these big old cars on campus and I had no car, my shirt was from Goodwill, you know, um, and it was it was a a culture shock to kind of first notice the differences, um, you know, I guess kind of when you have money and when you don't and. It's one of the things that I still struggle with today. I kind of—it's hard for me to let go of the of the frugality. So I still clip coupons. I was just uh, with my husband in Copenhagen for uh, our 12th wedding anniversary, and I bought my souvenirs at the thrift store. (laughs) You know, and it's funny because it's partially a value of like saving money, and partially this value of I'm doing something good for the planet by repurposing something that somebody else didn't want or need. Um, So I think, um, you know, you could say you could take the girl out of Youngstown. You can't take the Youngstown out of the girl. I definitely can can relate to that. Um, You know, and it's interesting, just all the little things that you deal with in life end up impacting the kind of person you are.
0: So blue collar would be how you describe family, community. Mm -hmm. Um, What other values were passed down from either mom and dad or or your environment or your community that you take with you today?
1: Yeah. Well, so the one solid memory I have that what my mom would always say to me is I just want you to be happy. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, going off to college, I just want you to be happy. So she definitely instilled in me the value of seeking happiness and, um, and i think they demonstrated with how we grew up that that you know scientists actually research and have proven that, that you can achieve more happiness through experiences and not things mm-hmm so i believe that they taught me how to not be materialistic but appreciate the privileges that i do have now um uh, but to to really think about how you spend your money i think we did it out of a literally a necessity like well we need food so this money is going to food not the electric bill but um you know i definitely have become the type of adult that You know, I I just don't get drawn into buying the latest clothes. You know, I will wear and wear and wear, and then I'll go to a consignment shop after that when I really need something, and just really to value your dollar. So I think that is really important, and then a very strong work ethic um so and this may be kind of where i fall on the tail end of the gen x <laughs> um who i think are very much work hard play hard uh, but you know my mom is a waitress and she often would need to work double shifts you know um but she took and still takes so she's still working um the, although now she lives in las vegas and works for a, a tour company she takes tremendous pride in what she does um and that she, that she can be useful to others. And so in my sort of early days of, I don't know, I just want to help people. Um, the number one thing that guides me in all my decisions and what I take on as projects is how can I be helpful? How can I be the most helpful for the people who I think need me the most?
0: There's so much to unpack there. One you hit on sort of happiness. Where does happiness come from? There's some cool science around happiness. There's a whole, University of Pennsylvania now studies happiness. Yeah, positive psychology. Positive psychology. Martin Seligman. So we can get into that. (laughs) Um, You know, and you get into gratitude and a lot of other things. Um, So that part's interesting that mom was just saying, I want you to be happy, Mm -hmm. which is a statement um, but then the how of happiness is also really important. And I think a lot of people get lost in what is happiness and mm-hmm. the difference between happiness and pleasure and mm-hmm. how those are, are very different things. <laughs> the other thing that's interesting that you hit on was uh, the notion of experiences over materials. And since you brought generations into <laughs> it, um, I, I try to crush generation stereotypes as much as possible. Okay. I think it's because I'm quote unquote a millennial. Ah. and. I have, a har- yeah, like, I have a hard time with that uh, label, A, because I didn't have a cell phone in high school, uh, B, because we used encyclopedias when we were growing up, um, but C, because I think the generation above always looks down on the generation mm. below them. Yeah. And so, um, but science or data is showing that a lot of millennials value experience mm-hmm. over materials. Right. Um, but I think, I think there's also so many links. I always tell people this. I said, Yeah. Money can't buy happiness, but it can if you're using it the right way. So if you're using money to give to others, Mm -hmm. it's shown to increase happiness. Mm -hmm. If you're using money to um, take care of things that otherwise would drive you nuts, like there's a cool study recently that found that if you use money on having someone clean your house, Mm -hmm. then actually your happiness was increased because Mm -hmm. that's a mundane task Mm -hmm. that you can free your energy and happiness Mm -hmm. up to do something else. So those are just interesting concepts and ideas that I live in every day because I do workshops all the time and one of the questions I'll ask is, who here wants to be happy? Mm -hmm. And I've probably asked thousands of people and I've never had someone say, yeah, I don't want to be happy. (laughs) So we know that everyone wants to be happy, but not everybody knows, all right, what are the links to happiness? And by the way, what makes you happy may be different than what makes me happy and that's okay too. Mm -hmm. So I think we try to... um, label everyone and everything and say you're this or you're that or do this but we all are also individualistic um and it's one of the things i find in my in my world while i love science i also appreciate art Mm -hmm. and i think too often we just say the mind and the brain are science but there's also an art to it Mm -hmm. um so i think that part is really interesting i want to go back one last step and then we'll move forward uh siblings uh who else was Uh, impactful for you growing up? Uh, Was there anybody else besides mom and dad? It sounds like your grandparents also had a big role, but tell me about who else impacted you uh, in your childhood. So
1: I have an older sister and older brother, and uh, they definitely have had and still have a major impact on my life. So my sister was the first uh, in our generation to go to college and Hmm. finish college. And then my brother, um, He joined the Navy at first, and we we always knew that he was, like, kind of smart and didn't, you know, kind of easily got good grades. Um, He joined the Navy at first, and he did so well um, in these uh, nuclear power schools that he actually got a rare admission to the Naval Academy after being in the Navy for a couple of years. So he's a Naval Academy grad, and... um, he runs his own, he worked for ExxonMobil for years. He's a civilian now, um, but he has run, uh, now runs his own um, consulting company. Um, and so I'm very proud of him. Um, and yeah, my sister was the one who really helped me choose colleges. And just, she taught me, no one can ever take away your education from you. Um, and it doesn't matter doesn't matter what it costs although i can argue that the way we run education in our country is making it prohibitive from a lot of people uh, for a lot of people to to finish but it's just the idea again of valuing your education um and you know teaching me independence and that while well, sure you can fall in love and get married if if that's in the cards but be independent so you know.
0: where do you think she got that from
1: <laughs> um i think that That, that's a good question. She, um, you know, I think it probably came out of her being, she was six years older than me, so she could notice at a different level when we were in, like, the have-not phase. Um, And so I think she, you know, probably saw education as a way to uh, break free from our social class.
0: And were mom and dad supportive of that for her?
1: Yes, um, they were. You know, they they weren't college educated, and I mean, they weren't like you're going to college no matter what. But I, but there was no standing in the way. Um, you know, and so something, you know, must have clicked for my sister between, um, you know relationships or friendships or just guidance counselor at the school i think that there was this assumption okay college is the next step and Mm. she
0: was that the assumption of most people that were in your school or were you guys uh sort of oddities to take that next step
1: You you know we have youngstown state university and so that's an affordable local university my best friend went there Um, and she's a teacher now in like inner city in Columbus so it's like we've got very important jobs and people need educations in order to do you know teaching nursing um, you know so I think it's really important that we have access to affordable education so I think our um, school system really did a good job about um, making sure that we got the next level of education Um, and we had like honors level classes too and my siblings and I were all in honors classes, so I would hope that everyone, even if you weren't in the honors program, was encouraged to get further education.
0: You said that your brother school came pretty naturally to, or he was gifted. We yeah. use the word gifted. <laughs> were you gifted, or were you someone that had to use that blue collar work ethic to yeah. get to where you wanted to go?
1: Yeah. So this is really interesting too. Uh, one of the, so I was in the honors classes, but the the one time I was on the news, uh, it was for something positive, but it was, uh, we were being interviewed about our honors English professor. And my quote for the camera was that he nicknamed me Fluff Chick. And, uh, and she's like, wow, and, and, and you still like him? And I was like, yeah, he's a funny guy. But I think there was this contrast between you know, caring about hair and makeup and all that stuff that you do when you're in high school and the reputation, I think of, um, ditziness or dumb blondes. And to be fair, you know, I still make mistakes like with song lyrics, you know, I thought Panama was vertical, <laughs> <laughs> you know, or... Uh, rat in a cage. I thought it was, I'm still just a renegade. So, like, there are silly things. You know, there's a quirkiness to my personality. Um, but I think that it's easy to make a judgment based on appearance or based on the way a person talks. And um, actually, we go back to the sad story behind the scenes, but I grew up stuttering um, and I had to have speech therapy and it was a—I um, I was able to overcome it um, but I th- What
0: age did you overcome it?
1: Uh, it had to be elementary school as mm. I remember kind of getting pulled out and getting special um, language one-on-one coaching and it you know I was told oh, it's just because your brain thinks way faster than your tongue can talk. And it was like the nice way, you know, and so those things really were helpful. There was a lot of shame reduction around it. But of course I was teased. Um, and so I think that there were things, you know, like that. It was like they couldn't believe that I had smarts, too. So I I feel I naturally tested into the honors classes, and I did well in school. I got 1B, I blame my best friend, uh, with Spanish class because she made me laugh the entire time just speaking Spanish and around me. So, um, you know, I think that when I went to college, there was this shift where I felt like you know, men and women were treated equal and they believed in a potential no matter what I looked or sounded like. And so it was like, okay, you're interested in chemistry. We're going to do this, that, we're going to do these chem, these biologies. And it was, it was like other people believed in me more than I believed in myself. And then when I went back home after the first semester and told people I was studying chemistry, they're like, really you? And it was like this. And so then it it became this drive of like, yeah, I can do it. I'm going to show you. Um, and it was a motivator. I think it was a motivator to prove that I could do things that even I didn't think I could do. And that's lasted throughout my life, whether it was the first time I did an ultra marathon or, you know, writing Body Kindness. So.
0: All right. So you just threw a bunch <laughs> my way. Um, so first of all, stuttering. My wife is a speech pathologist. Ah, so uh, props. Yeah. To so, your wife. so she's doing good work. Um, <laughs> But uh, the second thing is, it sounds like you enjoy blasting stereotypes. It sounds like there's a part of you that says, okay, I look this way. Yeah. Well, all right, now watch what I'm going to do. <laughs> um, and the other cool thing to just unpack there is, the other thing that university gave you is that, all right, everybody got in. Mm-hmm. So we all tested into this or scored into this or had the resume to get into this. So now I felt like I'm now in an even playing field with all these people, regardless of, my background, what I look like, how much money they have, whatever it mm-hmm. might be. So that's cool. But you slid two things in there that I want you to unpack okay. that give me insight into who you are. Mm-hmm. Number one, you just sort of slid in there that, oh, I got a B and, you know, that was my one B. So I'm curious <laughs> what the word perfectionism ah. means to you. And then the second, I mean, you're not going to throw out ultra marathon <laughs> and think that I'm not going to, you know, you know, raise my eyebrows at that. Yeah. I had a guy on this podcast named Jesse Itzler. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you know about Jesse, uh, but he hired David Goggins, mm-hmm. uh, who's a former Navy SEAL. And Goggins has run 100 mile, wow. you know, mm-hmm. by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jesse ended up running a 100 mile marathon. But he he had David Goggins come and live with him for 30 days. And he basically was at He was a slave to David Goggins. He had to do whatever. And he wrote a book called Living with the Seal. Uh, It's a popular book. Um, But Jesse talked about his mindset when he's running ultras. Before we get to ultras, talk about high school version of yourself. Was there an element of perfectionism that showed itself there? Um, I am guessing if you had all A's and one B that that did exist. But you tell me. What was was that like for you?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I... I think that, like most people, right, we all have this inner critic. It starts at age one where you pick up these messages about you're not good enough this way or that way. And in one sense, when you compare yourself and you notice there's an inadequacy, it can, to a point, be a motivator to help you move forward. Like, you don't have something you want, so go after it. But perfectionism in and of itself is deadly, Um, you know, because you can't, nobody can really achieve perfectionism and you end up becoming overwhelmed with the anxiety of not being good enough that you're actually not satisfied. Um, and, and, you know, it, it can, can harm yourself, mind and body. So I guess I don't really identify as being a perfectionist, um, in high school, but I, I liked achievement, right? So I got that sort of dopamine reward from succeeding at things, uh, and um, you know, I guess that I I have learned through my career and my work that I do now actually how harmful perfectionism can be. So I feel I feel grateful that I didn't get like you know take the bait and really get sucked into that. Um, But I think that like typical people in especially high school girls, like you compare yourself, your body to other people's bodies. And that sent me down an unhealthy path with eating and exercise for a while that I um, overcame. Um, But yeah, and now I feel like today I'm hoping my girls will not have a tendency toward perfectionism. The older one, and she's only not even five, but already... um, she's kind of picking up on that, you know, beyond sadness for when she doesn't win the race, just kind of like, and, and, you know, and I'm a bad person. And that's how you know the difference is like, you know, um, you can feel bad that you didn't win the race, but with perfectionism, it will give you all these reasons for why you suck so bad now. Um, and that's, what's so harmful about
0: it. So let's, let's push aside the ultra. We'll yeah. come back to the ultra okay. marathon, but let's riff on this for a little bit. Okay. So I have, trying to think if I've talked to a pro athlete who doesn't consider themselves to be perfectionist. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, there, a lot of people would agree with you, a lot of science would agree with you on this notion of perfectionism can be crippling, paralyzing, Mm -hmm. and really harmful. In my world where I work with a lot of athletes, Mm -hmm. I find that the ability to shift from perfectionist to adaptable Mm -hmm is where a lot of the professional genius lies. Ah. So um, can I be somewhat perfectionist in my preparation, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just use a basketball player. I am going to make 20 shots in a row. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, I'm going to keep going until I make 20 shots in a row. Mm -hmm. So to acquire the skill, to get the muscle memory down, it needs to be perfect. A golfer, my swing needs to be exactly where it needs to be. The issue that perfectionists, and I'm putting it in air quotes since no one can see us, um, the issue they run into is that they bring that to the golf course when they're performing or the basketball court when they're performing. And that can be paralyzing, crippling, can lead to choking under pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I find is how can we develop them to still have some of that perfectionism when they're preparing? Mm -hmm. But when they're in that moment and they need to perform, be adaptable, be malleable, Mm -hmm. uh, be able to adjust, Mm -hmm. it's a hard thing to shift in and out of. um, But what I find more and more is that mindset for preparation, they need to shift out of when they are performing. So I can be somewhat neurotic, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, there is a a psychological disorder for um, when I'm preparing. But when I'm performing... I need to be narcissistic, yeah. which also is a psychological disorder. Yeah. Um, so, one of the things I'm amazed at and interested in is like we see these extremes in actors, musicians, mm-hmm. athletes when they are on the stage, like Beyonce is one of my favorite people to study. Like Beyonce is soft spoken. But if you hear her, she's like, everything has to be right. I need to make sure it's all good. But then she gets on stage and she's queen bee and she's letting it out there and she's letting it all fly. So one of the things I'm fascinated by is how do we toggle some of the perfectionism with, with the adaptability, some of the neuroticism with the narcissism. Humility, great when we're preparing, not so great when we're performing on a stage. Uh, confidence, Great when we're performing, not so great when I'm watching film to try to figure out what do I need to do differently. Mm-hmm. So um, that's something that I really find to be fascinating. And a lot of times people will talk poorly about perfectionism, mm-hmm. but part of why they got to where they were mm-hmm. was in part because of the perfectionism. Right. Fear of failure. People will say, don't fear of failure. But then they'll say, oh, yeah, but I was afraid to fail when I was 25 and I worked my ass off to get to where I went. Mm -hmm. So those are things that really intrigue me. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm sure as we get into the um, element of body Mm -hmm. and um, (laughs) we talk about what we're eating, I would imagine that side is where perfectionism, to your point, can just be... Mm -hmm. Really, really troublesome.
1: Do you study Carol Dweck and the growth mindset? Yeah. Okay, so that's exactly what I was thinking of when you were talking about all of that. And um, she studies athletes, and she's helped um, underserved, um, poor schools slam it on the tests by embracing the growth mindset. Um, and so I think I 100% agree with you, and I remember reading interviews and stories about the hours that the real pros, whether it's Hamilton or the athletes, you know, they, the hours they have to put in expecting perfection so that when they're in the performance, they can just push play and go. Um, and that's why a lot of um, athletes, I work with a handful of pro athletes in the area on certain things, but uh, usually the ones I work with, there is a sports psychologist on the team um who is um there to help them visualize their success and uh to help them from like choking like you were talking about so i i do agree with you that uh there's a difference between like the drive and the like the drive for a goal and striving having super high expectations but watching so that it doesn't take a turn. Um, and so with the growth mindset of just saying, not yet, you're not there yet, there's actually compassion in there. It's saying, you can't do this, you won't do this, you're not good enough, more of a fixed mindset, which that would be where perfectionism would get in your way.
0: Yeah, and Dweck, I mean, when people ask me for a book, I often send them to there and Who am I to question her? I think her work's been amazing, but I'm going to question it. So um, (laughs) uh, look, I think growth mindset, absolutely necessary and useful when we are preparing. Right. But when it's time to perform, and I don't care if you're taking a test Mm -hmm. or you're in the orchestra Mm -hmm. uh, or you're on a field, Mm -hmm. you need to know this is who I am and this is what I do. Mm -hmm. And that's very fixed. It's affirmations, right? Like presence. Yeah, like I'm strong. I am uh, a great passer. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can hit my driver far. Mm -hmm. I um, know how to play this chord. Like Mm -hmm. those things are very fixed. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we miss in a lot of the psychological research Mm -hmm. is that we don't add uh, environment or situation to the context of things. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Like to me, yes, absolutely, growth mindset is massive. And, and for school especially, if I take on a growth mindset, I'm going to acquire the knowledge and it's going to help me perform on a test where I probably will know basically what the questions are mm-hmm. and so I can provide an answer. One of the issues with our school system is that's not how the real world works, mm-hmm. right? The real world says, okay, you're going to study all this and now here's a curveball, <laughs> right? Like it's more like pop quizzes. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, And I'm not saying you need to say I'm fixed, like I'm smart Mm -hmm. and I'm this and that, but it can be fixed in the sense of like, I'm resilient. Mm -hmm. It could be fixed in the sense of like, you know, I know how to problem solve. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it could be fixed in the sense of like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Right? Like those are fixed comments. So,
1: um, well, but wait a minute, but resilience, you can't have resilience unless you have self-compassion and unless you have the belief I can handle this. So, sure, I guess, um, I mean, I guess those things are fixed, but maybe they're like a funky little blend of both of them.
0: Yeah, I like that's the good. blending. That's my whole thing. Like, let's blend. And mm-hmm. and you hit on something that is so true, which is it's what we do and not who we are, mm-hmm. right? So, like, um, you know, how I perform, that's what I do. But I am still, my value as a human being mm-hmm. shouldn't be defined by a grade in a class mm-hmm. or um, how many points I score or how I do on, in the show, uh, it should be defined by my character and how I treat people what i how I respond to adversity, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. I do think there 's a separation between who you are and what you do um, but those things that 's like i think it's it 's fascinating by the way i 'm saying I still give the book I, I love I love the concept of it,, yeah. but I guess i 'm just contrarian in nature, and yeah. um, I think it 's important that we are contrarian and not just. Science has a way of being extremely valuable, mm-hmm. but science changes, it evolves, it shifts. Mm-hmm. And I think we always just want to be open-minded to it rather than a slave to it. Yeah. But I agree with you, like who we are and the compassion we have for ourselves, mm-hmm. um, and the notion that we're not a, a fixed product and we're constantly evolving, right. like that's always useful. Right. Um, but when we are in it and we are competing, like-
1: Be a robot.
0: Right? Like, we need to find a way. Yeah. We need to be adaptable. Yeah. And, um, like, you talked about comparisons, like, internal and external motivation, right? Like, internal motivation, I want to do this to be the best I can be. External, like, all right, I want to be better than that person. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of the top performers in the world are a 10 out of 10 on internal mm-hmm. and maybe a 9 out of 10 on external. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, like, they... Their base and their foundation is I'm doing this because I want to be the best version of myself, Mm -hmm. but don't get it twisted when they get cut from a team, when they, when someone else makes an all-star team, Mm -hmm. they're going to say, all right, now watch what I'm going to do. So I think,
1: yeah, I I can relate to that. Yeah, I can. It's just in, you know, just in just the writing aspect of what, of what I'm doing, of course, it's like, and I want it to be a bestseller, you know, and then my publisher's like, we're expecting a slow growth, you know, kind of like, don't worry about it, you're not Oprah or Renee Brown or whoever, you know, and you're still getting to publish a book, like, chill out, you know, and then, of course, it's like, I already have the next idea, and already talked to my agent about that, and all these, and it's like, you look at who has what coming out and oh, I wanna do something like that. So I can, it's not athletics, but I can definitely relate to that, that drive of comparison. And I think the difference is the shame reduction. So I'm not saying, Oh, look at how many books Gabby Bernstein has sold and her self helpness and this and that and thing and I suck and you you're never gonna be worth it, anything. Don't even try. You know, that would be full of shame and that would keep me from caring about The next book idea or the fact that I, you know, had somebody email me to say, your book really changed my life. Like Mm -hmm. she might get thousands of those and I got one. But to, to say that mine isn't worthy is full of shame and it's demotivating. But certainly, I think in sort of drive and achievement that you can say... I have a certain amount of satisfaction for this, and it was good enough, but now there's something else I'm hungry for. There's something else I want, and I'm going to put my energy into that.
0: Beautiful. You know? Beautiful. And you said you're not an athlete, but I, <laughs> I bookmarked. All right. Explain to people who don't know what ultras are what an ultra (laughs) is and we're gonna get a real sense of how freaking crazy you really are uh because we're gonna we're gonna talk about being anyone that runs ultras and says they're not an athlete first of all is a liar uh and then second of all i just want to get insight into what your mind was like mentality why the heck you wanted to do that i'm assuming you also have run other marathons Mm -hmm. uh talk to me about when how why all Mm -hmm. that good stuff
1: well um so, my very first marathon was Marine Corps Marathon, and one of my coworkers had said she was training for a marathon, and I was like, oh, I could never do that, right. you know? And she said, oh, sure you can. You just start slow miles and add up. So, that year, I'm going on a run with her, and it was maybe, like, the first time I ran, I just, it was like a... Walk, jog, 5K, and I was happy I didn't puke at the end of it, you know, which is like three miles. And she said, oh, come on a run with me. So it was like we did five miles or something, and then she'd invite me again. So I was not marathon training, but I was was able to do maybe somewhere between eight and ten miles when she did her marathon. And she said, yeah, we're going to do it together next year. And it was like somebody else believed in me more than I did. So I did, I made it fundraising for diabetes research, um, which was in my family, and I did the Galloway Run-Walk program, and I followed, you know, the training. Program, I had a training group. I followed the different rules and I crossed the finish line. Um, no real complaints except for being sore. And um, then I, I think I took a year off, one or two years off. I was career changing into nutrition, but I did my second.
0: Before you go to the so, second, what did it feel like to cross that line? and just yeah like like the expression like everything just let out yeah. as as you just said that i
1: wanted to kiss the marine who put that <laughs> medal around my neck i mean it did it felt amazing um it yeah i can't yeah it felt like as huge sense of accomplishment i knew that i was completing something that only 1% of the population would ever attempt and it, yeah it i mean it felt great it felt um it felt that sort of you can do anything if you put your mind to it and um, pushing your limits. All of that stuff that you would imagine, I, I got out of it. Um, and, 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 you know, what was interesting is that um, when I did my second marathon, it was another um, Marine Corps. And this was when I was a new dietitian. And one of the areas where I was going to specialize in was sports nutrition. So this, you know, this is a story more of about. Um, I had it this made up in my mind that in order to be a, a worthy sports dietitian, I was going to need to run sub four. <laughs> Meanwhile, not really training for a sub four. So where's the brains in that? Um, uh, but also that I needed to lose more weight, mm. that I need to look a certain way. So there was a strong inner critic voice saying that you need to do these things. And the day of the race, early on, I lost my two running buddy friends. Um, and I mean, long story short, I kept going, but something clearly wasn't right. And um toward the end, I don't know exactly where I was, but somewhere between mile 25 and 26, closer to 26. Um. All I know is that everything went black, mm-hmm. and I heard screams. And I woke up. I was in an ice bath, and um, there were hot Marines like surrounding me, staring at me, talking to the microphone. And my first, uh, my first response was, "Are you guys interns?" And they, and they said, "No, ma'am, we're doctors." And so I was clearly out of it, and we're talking and. That you know, she's the woman on, on the um, on the walkie-talkie was like, "No, we haven't located the husband." And I said, "Oh, my husband's right here!" And here I'm pointing at this marine. He's oh, like, man. "Ma'am, I'm not your husband." So just off the reservation, loopy doopy, um, and they start telling me where your body temperature went to 107. Wow! And I'm sitting there and I'm going, "Okay, how come I can talk to them and there's not a thermometer in my mouth?" <laughs> so I realized that not you know that. I mean, basically it's mortifying, but like I had, ultimately I had a heat stroke. Um, and what happens when you have a heat stroke is you lose control of everything, including your bowels. So like I crapped my pants, they had a thermometer up my butt. So here are all these hot Marines, you know, know like, oh my, so now I'm like mortified. Um, they were
0: not claiming to be your no, husband. They no, were not going to take ownership of that.
1: <laughs> but then, and then, um, I got to the medic tent and when a doctor came by to visit me, I mean, it was, it really, I burst into tears. He said, you could have died. Mm. He said, um, three runners carried you here and thankfully you were close. Um, and he diagnosed me with syncope, which is lack of oxygen to the brain. It wasn't super hot. Um, But I, I remembered right before, like I was like laughing at like runners who were getting leg cramps. Like I wasn't myself, like the wheels were coming off. But in that run, there was no self-compassion. There was no, it's going to be okay. Drink your water, do the, this. It was the intensity of you must, you must, you must. And I think a lot of that was shame driven, feeling inadequate that I would be a good sports dietitian, feeling inadequate, you know, about my body and my appearance. If I'm supposed to be a nutrition expert, you need to look a certain way. And, um, It was my first DNF, did not finish, and I swore I would never run again. And a good friend of mine, he's like, nope, you have to slay the dragon. You have to run another marathon within a year. And I actually did um, 13 more marathons after that. In Mm -hmm. one year, I did five endurance races in a year, and two of those were ultras. Um, And one was accidental. I thought it was a 20-miler, and I showed up. It was like the North Face Endurance Challenge. and, and, um, And here it was. Um, thirty some miles.
0: <laughs> Wait, but but you, you give credit to others there. Yeah. But you know, you could have said you're going to slay the dragon, and you yeah. could have said no, the dragon, the yeah. dragon's dead. Like I'm done. Like, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. What caused you to get back out there and, and, and go for it when you have this honestly this brush with death? I mean, yeah. it what, was a
1: near death experience. It yeah. was it, it was a traumatic event and a near death experience. I think honestly, I know you brush off giving credit to others, but without question, my first marathon, getting back into it and ultimately completing my ultra were all because other people believed in me more than I believed in myself. And I said, you know, that's amazing. This person has the ability to believe in my potential more than my limited mindset. I am going to trust this person instead of the voice inside my head Mm. and I'm going to try. Hmm. I'm going to try anyway. And so it really is the belief, you know, I guess the realization that other people have an optimism that I don't have Hmm. saying if they believe, why don't I at least try? And I think you have to, I don't believe you can control your feelings at all. So I don't like, don't be afraid. I'm more like feel the fear and do it anyway. So of course I was afraid the first marathon after the DNF, I ran it with a friend in Seattle he ran it with me. He held my hand across the finish line and I cried like a little baby yeah. because it was like I got to rewrite my story. You know, I didn't die. I I could listen to my body. I could take care of myself. I could, you know, I could do it and it it allowed me to kind of I mean bounce back. It's a resilient story, really.
0: Just so I understand the second one that you ran and that you had the health issues were you unhealthy going into it as far as diet and, and exercise or that led to that? Or you think it was just a, a freak, thing I, a freak think,
1: thing? I think, well, so I, once you have syncope, you always have it. So I'm always at risk. Um, what I notice as a runner, um, I have, um, I've got like large muscles. So they generate a lot of heat. So I need to sweat a lot. So, but what happens is when I sweat, it can evaporate quickly, which then rises your body temperature. So I'm prone to dehydration Mm -hmm. Um, so yes I have to have a good fueling and hydration plan so I think it was part genetics I was well trained for it but I went in there it was intense it was this feeling of you're not good enough so you have I mean telling myself to get a sub four marathon without training for a sub four marathon is pretty dumb Yeah, you know it's not a wise choice it's one thing to go in to train for it to hope for it to have your race times on your arm to run with the four pace and give it the old college try and if you fail you know try again but this was um this was based out of shame and perfectionism and judgment and it was irrational it was wrong so in the next one it i I needed compassion
0: it's interesting though the reason i say uh as far as like brushing off uh the other people because the other people could still extend that olive branch Mm -hmm. but you had to accept it and, and then yeah, so like you still had to go and, and do yeah. all that. So that's why I, I sort of hinted at that. I, yeah. think, I think this notion, uh, others can inspire us, right. but at the end of the day, it's still our decision from the inside out as to whether or not we want to be inspired. Right. Um, uh, and there's another piece to that that I, I just want to unpack again mm-hmm. is this notion of what in you mm-hmm. is driven to to keep going like what what in you you then I mean you didn't just then do one you right. then did a lot more <laughs> what is that grit or yeah. perseverance or
1: well interestingly one of they've studied marathon runners and one of the characteristics is that marathon training can actually build grit mm. so I think that's part of it I mean look I'm not gonna lie it's that rush that you get when you cross the finish line getting that metal over your head um, I still have my, they're, they're right there. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they're
0: bunched up in a corner <laughs> there. They're not like,
1: that's because the girls were playing with yeah. them, but yeah, but no, they're, yes, they're, they're sort of humbly placed on my counter. But, um, but yeah, I think that there's, I think the sense of accomplishment, I think, so I struggled a lot with my body image and it was about, it was body shame trying to change my body. And there were two things Yoga literally taught me body acceptance and compassion and holding myself with kindness. And there was a time in my life where I did, before I got into running, where I did yoga exclusively for like five years. It was a very different... It's still a part of my life, but there was a very different healing purpose. When I got into running, um, I I could learn to appreciate my legs for the power they had, Mm. not that they weren't the smallest size. Um, So I think that there was that there was a sense of healing that came along with that, too. With that, you know, it, it didn't matter if I gained weight when I was marathon training because I was I was training my heart and lungs. And, you know, there was a beneficial purpose, I guess, to the muscle um, that I had. And so for me, there was a lot of, like, reframing, um, though... I, I firmly believe, you know, you don't have to marathon train to be healthy. And actually, there's a lot of stuff that shows that doing a marathon can be bad for your body. Um, So I think that you kind of have to look at how would I get value out of this personally? Um, So, you know, I am signed up in the next few weeks to run my first marathon since I've had kids. Um, with a couple of friends. One of them was the guy who held my hand across the, the first one I did after the DNF. But it's really interesting right now because I had several weeks off of training, he had an injury, and we're kind of already having this conversation around, we might not do the marathon, we might dump back to the half. And I've decided that no matter what, I'm going to consider it a success as long as I listen to my body so Mm. if we start the full and end up not finishing get through a half and then bust it down if we respected ourselves if we listened to our bodies that's the more important thing um because I don't want to be in a situation again where whether it was injury or missing some trainings that led to not being ready for it that when my body tells me that it's time to stop this is no longer healthy that I will actually listen because I'm no longer driven by appearance and by these unhelpful pressures to look a certain way or be a certain way it's it's really just me and what can my body do for me that day
0: super cool and, and now you're getting into awareness uh and like being aware uh before we go further and, and learn a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. ultras Yeah. Uh, Explain to everyone what ultras are and then talk about that experience.
1: Sure. So ultra marathon means um, a distance that's beyond 26.2 miles. Um, I would say the typical ultra marathons are 50 milers or a hundred milers. But I did that accidental ultra where I just messed up the calculation in the distance. So it ended up being 30 miles. I thought I was doing 20 miles. Um, And so that was an interesting, um, it was, I was training for, the fall 50 miler and so I knew that I needed to build up to that distance anyway but I also had again that sense of self compassion of you've never done this distance so I walked when I needed to walk I did my hydration correctly and that one took me I guess almost six hours but I finished got my medal for the first ultra Um, but it was challenging terrain it was trail Uh, and you don't necessarily have perfectly timed water stops every two miles like you would in a road race for a marathon. Um, And then my 50 miler, uh, this was a random lady I met at a wedding who we got bonded over marathons, and she's like, oh, I'm doing this ultra, do it with me. And I was like, I can never do that. And she said, oh, you can. You just have to be trained for a fall marathon. And I was already running Chicago Marathon that year, so I really couldn't say no, put my name in the lottery, got in, and sure enough, you know, I ended up, doing this race with her um and it was great because it was the JFK 50 miler we were able to get an earlier start which um gave me time to get out there and like listen to my body and really it's just a time under tension issue like I mean that for me and again I'm obviously not the speedy one uh but that for me took 11 and a half hours to finish not a lot of joyful things we'd want to do for 11 and a half hours. So you have to have this mental energy believing that you're going to finish and a game plan. So that race in particular is like three different races almost. So the first part is um, Appalachian Trail and there's switchbacks. And it's like, you know, you have your most energy, but it's also the most difficulty. Um, And that's about the first 16 or so miles. And so you keep your head in the game. You focus on your footwork and all that stuff.
0: What is keeping your head in the game mean?
1: Um, for me, it's focused on, you know, that why am I there? What am I hoping to accomplish? And trying to make it more joyful, too. I mean, if you're going to do something for that long, what can I notice? So being grateful for being out on the trail, having fun conversations with the people in my running group, appreciating the trees and the things that I was seeing. Imagining and visualizing how I would feel at the end, getting that race medal, Um, and yeah, just you know, I think a lot of positive attitude and affirmations definitely going going into it, Um, and uh, you know, certainly being well fueled helps too. So um, you know, just we had a great dinner the night before, and like uh, um, just kind of feeling positive emotions about what we were about to do. Um, Then the second part is flat and it's also the largest chunk but they do a really good job Since so this is on the cno canal and they do a really good job maybe every five to ten miles they have an aid station but there was a different theme at each aid station so it was like i remember you know and then funny signs uh that could kind of make you laugh but i remember one sort of in the around high 40s um No, probably high thirties. It was like Santa Claus and the elves. They were all dressed up, giving us cookies and hot chocolate. So just this, you could kind of, you know, escape for like a couple minutes, stretch, enjoy the cookie and hot chocolate. Hi, Santa, take your picture and then go on to the next thing. The last miles is eight. It's road, it's hilly. And for that one, what I am, honestly i feel like the most proud of is um i did my pace but i connected with a guy who was running and and we both felt energetic and we said let's just distract each other and and run this thing in together and my last eight miles was at a nice pace Hmm. considering you know the fact that it was 50 (laughs) and i finished very strong and confident and very happy so that's a good story
0: very cool um, you had mentioned the transition into becoming a, a dietitian, mm-hmm. uh, around the time that second marathon mm-hmm. was happening, what were you doing before then? And what led to the transition to, to get into that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, before then I kind of got sucked into the dot com craze, so I wasn't early enough for AOL and to get those, those nice stock <laughs> options, um, But um, I kind of got sucked in that that IT could be a good field, and I think it was. Um, I ended up getting jobs in the nonprofit side of IT, so it's not like I was buying Lamborghinis with my paycheck or anything. But I enjoyed – I was a computer programmer, so I was coding and all this stuff, and I really enjoyed it. I got into user interface design. And then um, 9-11 happened, and it was, I mean, I was on, I was, I also on the side, I was a personal trainer. And so, um, I would meet some folks at a gym in a government agency. And so the morning of September 11th, I was finishing with clients and we like watched the planes hit. So the second plane, when today's show started covering it and very stupidly, I went on to work and, um, I was, um, when I was walking in somebody came in screening I saw a plane hit the museum which at the time was closer to where I was working and close closer to the pentagon and um obviously that wasn't right it hit the pentagon but it was it was terror and um so that again it was another shared traumatic event I feel grateful that I did not lose anyone um many, many other people did, but I think no matter what, just we knew that our, that's the defining moment that we knew would forever change. And so for me, um, you know, I, I'm not really a, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely a spiritual person, but like I've never been baptized, so I can't really say I'm religious or really a person of faith, but I I do go to church at times and with different friends who who do and try to get what I can out of it. But uh, you know, I was I I was going and getting really good sermons that were reflecting on things like gratitude and things like bringing good into the world and it just reminded me that I always wanted to help people that in my chemistry studies was when you know I found out that I really cared about nutrition and exercise. Um, From actually a college coach that taught this gym class and he would say it's a great day to be alive and he kind of taught this optimism um, and he was the first one that kind of got me away from like exercising for weight loss and more into like there's all these other reasons to do it and so long story short I was like you're lucky that you have the rest of your life ahead of you who cares how long it takes or how much money if you're not really happy you need to follow something that would make you happy. And I just decided to, that I would work, but I would take classes in nutrition. It took me seven years because I was working full time and you had to take the classes and then you have to get past board, you have to do like basically like a residency, it's called dietetic internship. You have to do that, you have to get in, pass your board exams. Um, and while I did that, I also got a master's in communications from Johns Hopkins because I knew not only did I want to know the science to help people change their habits, but I also wanted to be able to communicate that to people who either would never be a client or just, you know, kind of help provide helpful information about, um, and for me, it was nutrition and exercise was coming from a place for energy and quality of life, but it's still also very much intersected with like weight control and weight loss, which now is not the case anymore.
0: It's interesting cause the thing that you said your parents taught you and you said, my mom always told me, you know, mm-hmm. do what makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And then you have this crazy event happen, not you. We yeah. all have this crazy mm-hmm. event happen. And that serves as a, a point in your life where maybe I need to go toward what makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we like all-
1: Like I don't want to waste. It was like, I don't want to waste this gift of a life that I have because many people had no choice. And you're sitting here with a choice and you could just keep doing what you're doing or you can challenge yourself in
0: something that you
1: really care about where you think you can make a difference.
0: So there's an intentional shift Mm -hmm. that takes place there, a career shift. Mm -hmm. Um, How is your mindset different as you got into that field compared to when you're doing programming and Mm -hmm. coding and all that Mm -hmm. other fun stuff?
1: Hmm. Um, You know, I mean, I guess it's like, just I don't know I, I really feel like it's the same mindset like as far as drive and intent you know it, but it, it's a totally different field so it was like learning the rules of that field learning how to succeed in that field so um you know I learned early on that you could work with food companies and go on tv and so I had a tv segment today like that's something I still do and you know I learned that a lot of consumers get their information from magazines and what they see on tv and so I was like well If I don't go on TV and give people advice, then somebody else will. So why not let it be me? Um, And so, you know, like I think there was some, you know, got to figure out the difference I want to make here. And um, it's just, you know, I would say, unfortunately, the downside of it is in the beginning, I really thought that the main difference that I could make is I would call it health and say I'm going to help people get healthy with my weight management programs but it really was diet programs that as much as I tried to make it about lifestyle I was putting armbands on them that monitored their every move before Fitbits were out like I was like I'm going to watch you you know um, journaling every food that they put in through their mouth. Um, and Perfectionist,
0: so, neurotic, oh gosh, all that exactly. stuff. Exactly.
1: And they were paying me. I was taking <laughs> their good money to be like, I'm going to know when you sleep, what you eat, what you drink. And I could probably tell with this thing when you're having sex, you know? So none of that, no. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it was, it was just, it just wasn't right, you know? Um, and, and I was selling what I believed, which was that you get happiness, you know, when you, it was, it was like it was co-opted because I do believe that in my heart it was you get happiness when you create these new habits, but I did not separate weight loss from it. So it was like, do you want to manage your weight? Or, you know, um, come see me. And it was like, I wasn't helping them learn how to fit pizza into their life I was giving them rules of yes we're gonna avoid the pizza that makes sense you know and so they'd eat pizza and then feel guilty about it and then I didn't know how to help them deal with the guilt and the shame you know there was a lack of trust and what I also noticed is when we got weight loss in the beginning it was a cycle because they would regain the weight later and um you know the reality of if it is, I actually grew up being a chronic dieter. I dieted with my mom a little bit. I thought it was normal because that's what everybody did. And even early in my career in nutrition, this is what I was doing, thinking I was being helpful. Um, but I realized it wasn't, and I realized I just needed to change everything.
0: Are you optimistic? Are you an optimist?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely.
0: Are you controlling?
1: No, because control is a bad thing. Like with respect to weight, that's what I try to help people do is give up the idea of controlling your weight. You know, I teach about genetics as the number one factor. I teach things like being physically inactive is worse for your health than carrying around extra weight. So a person who is, you know, by the charts clinically obese, if they're active, their risk of death is only 2%. If Mm. you're inactive, the risk of death is 14%. So it's things like that, you know, but that's not our culture. Our culture just values thinness. And what I try to do now is get people to see that even if you want to lose weight, if you can put those desires on the back burner, first of all, understand you weren't born with that, it's culturally driven. But put those desires on the back burner and then we'll work together on a positive mindset that changes your habits. And then um you'll create a better life from there. Um, And you mentioned the positive psychology, but it's body kindness is grounded in the research of positive psychology um, and the work of the pioneers there. um, And especially Barbara Fredrickson, who coined... Um, spiral up as this idea of that when you experience a positive emotion that that leads to more positive emotions and then as the opposite of a downward spiral that closes you off when you can experience more positive emotions you spiral up and you're more open and connected to people you care about and the world so I took her philosophy of spiraling up just for psychology and I layered it with what we know about food choices and sleep choices and exercise choices and so I embrace The idea of spiraling up throughout the whole book. And that's where they get people to say that one simple self-care choice about getting enough sleep, you know, scientifically creates the hormones so that your appetite is normal, right? But when you wake up and you're hungry and you eat your breakfast and that feels good, that puts you in a good mood and you're more likely to be focused at work. And when you do a good job in the work meeting, that's likely to elevate your mood. And so, you know, to be aiming for that spiral up, And to notice when you're spiraling down rather than go, and I've done this before too, oh, screw it, life sucks, eat a pint of ice cream or two, you know, to realize that that's an escape and a numbing and avoidance and to with compassion and say, you know what, I'm upset because I got yelled at by my boss at work, I'm upset because I got into a fight with my partner, I'm upset because I'm having trouble with my kid, that it's okay to have these negative feelings that no amount of food or self-sabotage is going to, relieve those feelings but if I can visualize a spiral up what I can do is instead of the self sabotage do one positive thing that's in line with the kind of person I want to be and that is going to help me at least neutralize my downward spiral and then start to spiral up again now all of a sudden I'm living the life I want to live based on my values and goals and things that I think are important I'm not blaming my body I'm not shaming myself I'm talking about the actions I want to take consistently that's in line with the kind of life I want. And that has nothing to do with weight or shape or appearance. And that's what I had to learn.
0: Super cool. <laughs> uh, I mean, you just hit on so many themes that resonate with me. You said something earlier about you know, feelings. We don't control our feelings. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a big misconception that we control our feelings and we control our thoughts. Nope. Um, you know, everyone has bad thoughts. Mm-hmm. Everyone has feelings that are not necessarily helpful. Um, And by the way, feelings of anxiety are extremely helpful when we're crossing the street and (laughs) there's a truck coming, right? Sure. So we tend to say like, oh, anxiety bad, Mm -hmm. confidence good. Um, But, you know, confidence or if I have no anxiety about death, Mm -hmm. then yeah, I'm going to eat a cheeseburger, fries, drink a beer and a milkshake for lunch. like. (laughs) if there's no anxiety right (laughs) and you may say oh that's a like like, and eventually you're probably not going to live very long um but so I think those themes are, are really interesting I was curious what you think about willpower yeah and how you think about willpower
1: uh so another interesting word um I'm a student of Kelly McGonigal. Mm -hmm. So she wrote a book about willpower. I'm super excited. I loved her book, The Upside of Stress. I used it and referenced it in Body Kindness. I highly recommend that book to anyone. And she actually, I know because I follow her fangirl on Twitter, is working on a book about um, all the different health benefits of exercise. I'm super excited to read that when it comes out. I have no idea about her timeline, but I know from being a student of hers, she is into yoga and mindfulness, which body kindness is grounded in mindfulness it is absolutely grounded it's not it's not going to be a, there's not a cover of buddha on the mountaintop and i don't i don't shove it down your throat like be mindful meditate but it is absolutely grounded in your awareness your ability to be aware and say what's happening right now that matters to me because that impacts your next choice um so willpower, I will get back to it. So the idea of willpower, if it's this idea that if you just white knuckle things and hold on, that you can, um, get whatever is wrong because we run out of the mental energy our prefrontal cortex just can't, um, hang on that long. And then our, you know, reptilian brain, right. That sort of uh, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You can only hold on and resist for so long that your, your willpower is limited, it runs out, and then you do the very thing you don't want to do. Um, so what she talks about in the willpower effect Is um, which is an older book of hers, but it's that exact kind of thing. It's recognizing that you need mental energy to make choices and so how to better work with your brain to sort of um, maximize your willpower. And so for that, you know, I... I get like there's a certain amount of self control. Why did you show up with clothes on to our interview today? Because I
0: thought about going naked. When I thought right. maybe maybe I'll get arrested if I do that.
1: Right? Why so did it. I show up with yeah. clothes on? You know why? Yeah. Did
0: you I had a better door? option than I did.
1: <laughs> and say hello yeah. and let that whole thing. You know, it's like that. There's a certain amount of decorum that we there's social rules and everything like that and that so um how am i connecting that to willpower well i guess it's that idea of that there are certain things that we do that we don't even have to think
0: about automatically right
1: automatically but when it comes to willpower we're talking about focus and concentration and using our mental energy it's a very limited resource it's one of the reasons why um its I don't use this with to tell them this is activation energy but when, when we say start small and that's okay and be happy with that it's not because we don't want people to be motivated but we want them to repeat the behavior over and over and over and over again so that it becomes a habit it's the neuroplasticity of their brain but the more difficult you make something it's, it's the higher activation energy it requires to get over that hump and the more likely they're going to run out of the willpower that it takes and they're going to give up and quit and they're not going to have a habit so um i i think there's yes people have a certain amount of willpower but it is highly limited and so whether it's you know i'm just uh, i say in body kindness i say don't set a dead person's goal so like i'll never eat chocolate cake ever again if a dead person can do it better than you it's a horrible goal for you don't do it because it's you can only white knuckle no chocolate cake and then eventually you're gonna give in and and that's where willpower runs out and it reminds me of today's diets like diets in disguise and I'm totally going to throw Whole30 under the bus even if you love it I don't care you know it might work for you but it doesn't work for most people and it's that exact thing of you can eliminate sugar or whatever they're going to take out for so long and what happens day 31 and you can act like oh well people can just test what it's like with the donut what happens they'll eat five donuts day 31 you haven't taught anybody how to make a better decision about when to eat donuts and so when it comes to all that sort of rigid you know plans to follow for eating um You know, And again, I do work with athletes, and there are athletes that have certain performance plans, but that's an intersection of, I have sports performance goals and a high motivation, here's my performance plan, but I also have to do it in a way that works for me. And they also have off-seasons, so when I work with with my athletes in the off-season, they have a completely different life that is much more flexible than when they're doing their sports stuff. But for the average person... You got to have some
0: flexibility. It's amazing because I've been around pro teams that yeah. give their athletes crap oh. for food. Oh,
1: that's not good. And it's Quality changed. Quality matters.
0: Yeah, it's changed uh, over the years. But I can remember I've been around it for probably 15 years. Mm-hmm. And you'd walk in and it would be like just unhealthy food. And you're mm-hmm. like, what is going on here? <laughs> um but, but I was curious about willpower because I just yeah. think it's so intertwined with what we do and what we eat. And The way I always think about it is like if, I'm, if I drive past Krispy Kreme every single day on my way to work yeah. and uh, I have a tendency to get two donuts, stop, get two donuts and a coffee and I just say, all right, no more Krispy Kreme. Mm-hmm versus I'm going to put two apples in my car and every time I go buy buy the Krispy Kreme, I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to have an apple. Okay. Which of those is going to be more likely to be successful? I think the notion, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, but this notion of like, I'm going to make a decision, but also give myself an opportunity to be successful rather than just say, I'm cutting it out, um, which I think what you're hitting on. Exactly.
1: I know I agree with you 100% with that analogy. And I think especially because for me and body kindness, the bigger picture would say, well, what's bothering you? So it's not that you ever have a Krispy Kreme donut, right. right? But it's when every time I pass, I get two donuts and then I feel sick or confused or I feel like I ruin my day. And then I go to the cafeteria for lunch and get something that I regret. And so it's likely never one thing. It's a pattern. And so... And body kindness for behavior change, you say, I want to be the kind of person who, you know, you want to be the kind of person who eats a nourishing, balancing breakfast most days of the week. So you decide when enjoying Krispy Kreme is a good idea right. that makes you feel good. So it's not about eliminating. It's about trying to feel better. Uh, and that's not food policing. That's you making better choices that fit you best. And that's how you get more happiness and a better life. Whether or not you lose weight, that's what I would
0: add. And I think it's one of the things that I'm trying to get at with this podcast is like, let's live intentionally. Mm -hmm. So if you intentionally are saying, I'm going to have that Krispy Kreme donut on Saturday, Mm -hmm. or I'm at my child's birthday party and they have cake and I'm going to choose to eat some cake. Yeah. That's an intentional decision. Um, The issues when we become mindless and we don't realize we've done it and then we have a stomach ache and then we tell ourselves we're fat Mm -hmm. or we're lazy or Mm -hmm. whatever. The shame that you talked about. So really the idea of being intentional with what you're doing. And for me in my practice, I try to blend three things. We talked about blending earlier. Certainly a framework of mindfulness, the idea of observing thoughts for thoughts without judgment. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's just a massively valuable thing. And if we can have that foundationally and be aware mm-hmm. of our thoughts and feelings and observe, mm-hmm. um, I heard someone say this once, and I think it's a really cool thing is like, you don't have to participate in your thoughts or feelings. Right. Just because you have them Doesn't mean you have to be A willing participant mm-hmm. You can observe them Say hi Say hello Watch them And then watch them go by
1: And actually When you participate You're engaging in a tug of war mm. Right So you're, you end up fighting The thoughts or feelings Like go away Go away Go away But observing Is more like Cars going down the street Or yeah. clouds in the sky They're there they're allowed to be there but you're not going to fight with them anymore and that conserves that energy so you can be intentional about what you really want
0: you got it so you blend that and then for me I come from a school of cognitive behavioral so I think mm. how we talk to ourselves matters so right. to me I separate thoughts and thinking mm-hmm. thoughts we can't control mm-hmm. but thinking the way we talk to ourselves our self talk mm-hmm. that does impact us oh, yeah. so I use cognitive behavioral and then the last piece is the positive psychology which is like what do I look like when I'm at my best self mm-hmm. um and I think positive psychology as a framework, the book Mindfulness and Positive Psychology aren't the right words to describe what they actually mean. Mm -hmm. Like mindfulness, people get confused because it's not about making yourself more full in your mind. Yeah. Um, It's
1: paying attention on purpose, is what I tell people. Yes. Paying attention and you're doing it.
0: And I don't think positive psychology is about being positive all the time, it's just Mm -hmm. about valuing living with happiness and gratitude and all these things that we've talked about. So and, and
1: that's highly evidence based. Positive yeah. psychology is highly evidence based. I mean, the people who Martin Seligman who is the father of positive psychology and all his proteges, I mean, they are hard scientists and they've got good data and evidence that shows um they have the answer for how you create a meaningful life. Yeah. And like you started in the beginning. Who, do, you know, who doesn't want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. People want a meaningful life, long-term happiness.
0: Yeah, the science behind happiness is they found gratitude linked to happiness, helping others linked to happiness, self-satisfaction linked to happiness. I mean, there are, there are links that increase happiness. So that, that stuff's really cool. Um, okay, I think we covered our bases pretty well here. Um, I love, you know, I flipped through the book. I can't say I read the whole book. But when I was flipping through, and it's the first thing I said to you, I was like, man, there's a lot of psychology in here. Mm-hmm. Why not go down the path of psychology? Um, and why stay in sort of the dietitian nutrition world? Yeah. It sounds like, I mean, every book that you've mentioned yeah. um, are things that are just that's what I study. That's what I read. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like you have educated yourself immensely on it. Yeah. But why not be a psychologist? Yeah. That's one question. Yeah. The second question is, do you ever have clients who are looking for diet and you're giving them this other thing? Yeah.
1: Okay, so the first thing is, why not psychology? I guess never say never, right? (laughs)
0: More education!
1: (laughs) I've actually had thoughts of like, I'd love to get a PhD, and if I did, it would be psychology. But but right now I am. I'm enjoying the success I'm having at helping people now and enjoying being a mom. So um, that's a high value for me. In many ways, it is um, to show up from our my girls in ways that my mom wasn't able to, because of our socioeconomic status, because of her education level. Um, And there are ways where, you know, I wanna help, you know, create you know, these humans, I want them to become good adults. And so that means that they need time with their parents. So, so I've, I'm doing the juggle struggle with that thing. Um, but I think the answer to why not psychology is honestly, because I made the mistake of thinking that health was about appearance. I thought if we worked with what you ate and the exercise that all your problems will be solved. So I was still struggling with body image and dieting when I was going through my career change. Um, so interestingly, when I started seeing athletes, athletes—that's how I got my first client who had an eating disorder. And when I saw it, I didn't know what to do because I was undertrained for it. But I knew to help her get help, and she did get help, and she did recover. And I decided and I learned that dietitians could have a role in helping people with eating disorders. And so I ended up working with a lot of therapists. And yeah, be, being a student myself, um, I think a lot of what I do is therapeutic and nutritional therapy. And you know, I can call myself a nutritional therapist, but I don't, I don't have a, you know, I'm not a social worker. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist. I wouldn't use those letters, but there are ways to talk about what I do. It's, you know, it's, it's behavioral change. So it, it, it needs psychology. So I would just call to it that it's an inadequacy of how we train registered dietitians it's an adequacy for how we train personal trainers and exercise physiologists, which I'm also, you know, we, it's too focused on parents, not enough focused on the mindset. Um, so there's a lot of work that could be done in that whole area. Um, and then the second question was about.
0: So I sort of did both. Okay. So it was. You know, why not psychology, which I think you answered. And then you also answered the second, which was like, do your clients ever come to you? Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: They always, of course (laughs) they want. Think about it, right? We live in a culture... Right, I call it diet culture but it says you aren't good enough unless you're trying to lose weight like that is ultimately the message that's what I heard for a very long time and even now um, you know the most popular trend in 2017 it was predicted on Pinterest and the most popular diet trend is actually the anti diet so Millennials thank you I was you know thank you to the Millennials they hate dieting they hate slim fast they hate weight watchers they think it's all a waste of time and that it has been been part of what has ushered in body positivity and and people who are speaking out against weight stigma, which is all very, very important. but, you know, it's like, of course, people are going to come in. And in my marketing, so the words I use are weight concerns. Like, Do you have weight concerns? I can help you with that. Um, and I, you know, I say it's the only mindfulness-based nutrition and exercise behavioral change practice, you know, because so that they see we're focused on habits. It's based on mindfulness and all these very important things that I have gratefully learned from clients from the past. But I'm not a fool. Right. As long as our diet culture says the most important thing we can do is care about how hot we look and social comparison through Instagram and stuff, which we're seeing now in research, it hurts self-esteem and body image. That's the world we live in. Long term, I want to make it a better place, but in the short term, I'm not going to judge when they come in my door. I don't want to add to the shame they already feel, but I want to open them up. this idea of a non-dieting way to focus on your well-being and we observe if your body loses weight or not and it can be hard for some people they have a grieving period because that hope and promise of that first diet gave that dopamine reward and we can help people lose weight but they regain it anyway and it's not because of their lack of willpower it's actually been found to be beyond their conscious control. And it has to do with how our bodies maintain our weight from famine and set point. Um, And they've actually found that dieting is more likely to increase your BMI um, to unhealthy levels not, you know, some of people are naturally genetic, others it's been the diets that have been the problem all along, mm. and that's been the case in my own life and my mom's um, illnesses in her life with many, many clients. And that's why, for me, I can't in good conscience work with somebody who wants that drastic plan. Um, I will see athlete clients who are elite and in a weight class sports, I've got some, um, um. Um, Yes, exactly. And that we do what we can, but it is also um, you know, understood that we have to look after their psychological well-being too.
0: So when you said uh, millennials, I literally looked, I literally, since no one will ever watch this because we're not recording it, it's like my air quotes, um, I literally like turned around because I was like, who are you talking to? Not me. And I look up and I see above your door, it says never give up. And so it's a blessing that you said that because then I... I look up and I see never give up. So I want to end with this notion of like, how are you intentional with your life? Mm -hmm. How do you live intentionally? And that is a really good example of what I mean by that is like, you have a phrase over your door Mm -hmm. that reminds you to never give up. That's an intentional decision to put that over the door. Mm -hmm. And I have found the people that inspire me on these podcasts are very intentional with what they're doing daily, weekly, monthly. Mm -hmm. So I want to just... Sort of close the loop with mm-hmm. talking about intention. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you intentional with your life?
1: Okay. I would say, over everything, and I can get into some of the practicals, but over everything, the in- intention that I lead with is no matter what happened, it's okay. Hmm. And it's a phrase of self compassion. That means if somebody upset me, you know, it's okay. If I was the jerk, it's okay no matter what it is okay and that is that is an intentional response to the typical stuff that's called life that happens because if we have permission to have the full spectrum of experiences and emotions then we don't need to numb cope soothe or run away from the bad stuff because bad stuff's going to happen so that is a deliberate intention of every you know way that i experience life on the practical side, number one is absolutely sleep. I Nothing will get in the way of my sleep. I go to bed super early. I like it when I can wake up without an alarm. If I wake up and feel energy, I'll meditate in the morning. I'll get some early work done if, I, if that's what's calling my name. Um, that means on a daily basis, there are things that I wanted to get done that did not get done. So I try to do better with realistically scheduling my time. Um, and I'm a work in progress in that, you know, as a people pleaser, I will say that I think every potential project is interesting, but it can become a huge time suck. And I feel that from a self-care standpoint, if I don't get my sleep, it all else kind of falls apart. So I intentionally kids come home, no more phones or computers. It's family time that takes a lot of effort. Um, but then also when I hear this inner critic come up that's judging me because I didn't serve that person or I didn't get that thing done. Somebody else is waiting. I stop apologizing in my emails. Sorry for the delay. I mean, I'll hear from a PR firm five minutes after I email them. Sorry for the delay. I'm like, there's no delay. That's five <laughs> minutes. So, I, you know, I just think that it, it's there's like that kind of it's why Americans are so successful because of the drive but it can be to a detriment so so for me I've gotten very good at tolerating my own well-being comes first you know people can't see but in that cupboard behind you is an oxygen mask from the airplanes and I bring it out for clients and say what do they say when you're on the plane and they start crying because it's true we're we're givers and so you know with my intention no matter what how bad it is it's all okay I don't have to self-harm which was part of the past. And on the daily basis when I sleep, my daytime clicks. in um, some days I get great exercise and other days nothing. And that's okay because I see myself as an exerciser. I schedule it, you know, seven days. So that way when I miss two or three, so I've gotten four, I've gotten five, you know. Um, and yeah, there are some weeks where I quote-unquote, fail at that too, and I might hit a week with none at all. But then I remember, that's not the kind of person I want to be. I want to be the kind of person who prioritizes exercise, and so I fit it in. It's also caused me to change that it doesn't have to be the endurance thing. It could be the seven-minute workout app or hold a plank for a minute, that all efforts are good, which, again, from positive psychology, is really, really important.
0: So you will schedule stuff in your calendar Uh, carve out that space and that Mm -hmm. time you'll get sleep I'm looking around you've got notes to yourself Mm -hmm. you've got an oxygen mask and, (laughs) and just to just to make sure that everyone's on board what, what Rebecca is saying is, put your oxygen mask on first, first before you try to help others, which I talk about in leadership a lot because mm-hmm. people always want to know how to lead. I'm like, oh, put your mask on first and then get you can a help. Mask. Right? You can
1: like drop it, yeah, it's so I'll, fun. Maybe I'll do that. Oh, yeah, you can hide it in your sleeve and just drop it. Right. No, you'll get the laughs. laughs. They're like, um, it's funny what you can buy online. But yeah, absolutely right because, you know, especially like once you became like for me i I actually me first me first right and i meant self-care but as you know once you become a parent it's like no not really you first anymore but i think if you have this mindset of i have needs too yeah protecting the boundaries for those needs is some of the best things you can do for your kids your clients and everybody
0: i love that you brought up parenting so i'm new we have a year and a half old and a six month old. Oh, 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 that's ouch. usually the reaction we get so is a little, Oh, well, cause
1: I'm on the same page as you just years ahead. So I, mine are 19 months apart.
0: Oh, uh, we're, we're 14.
1: Ooh.
0: Yeah. We, we did a lot of, yeah. Um, There's a lot of, ooh to a lot that. of
1: whoopsies. Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> I'm just going to pretend like you didn't say that, but yeah, like I think one of the best advice I got from a client mm-hmm. was she told me, take care of the marriage first yeah, and then take care of the kids. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, a really hard thing to do but i think you hit on it which is like if i'm not taking care of myself as myself Mm -hmm. what kind of dad am i going to be for my kids i'm going to be exhausted i'm going to get angry i'm going to get overly emotional Mm -hmm. and i think to your point like put the mask on first and then try Mm -hmm. and put the take care of the marriage because if your marriage isn't good Mm -hmm. how's that going to affect the kids if i'm not taking care of myself how's that going to affect the kids Mm -hmm. um and you also do something that's that Absolutely. You also surround yourself with people that help you, because mm-hmm. um, oh, your yeah. story— one of the things across your, your entire story— also involved these people that have helped you get to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you are a very independent and strong person, and mm-hmm. driven and hardworking. I, I, you know, I, didn't, I don't want to gloss over. You're like working in uh, coding and IT, but you're also doing like training, athletic <laughs> training. What are you doing? So I get the sense that you are not someone who likes to stand idle and just do nothing yeah. so I think you are a go-getter and you're driven and I'm looking around and there's very much intention around your office mm-hmm. um, but you also clearly have surrounding yourself with people that can help you and I think that that is is one of the big keys to successful people are they believe in themselves mm-hmm. they um, develop their confidence from the inside based on the story that they tell right mm-hmm. so when I say like they did those people didn't Get you back into running. You did that, mm-hmm. but then you have a support system and environment. So you've created an environment for yourself, just like you did in high school, of people to help you um, and people that you want to be around. Um, so I think that's just super impressive.
1: Yeah. Well, I, so Mr. Rogers said, "Look for the helpers." Yeah. <laughs> I think that we all need we all need help, and and I and I think that, um, you know, I'll I'll talk about um, don't stick yourself on isolation island. Because what we tell ourselves is, we don't want to bother them, or they have other things to do, and and we end up isolating ourselves from people who very much find meaning in their own lives when they can help us. We have to let them do their jobs. We have to let them help us.
0: I always say the the people that work at the soup kitchen are the most selfish people in the world. (laughs) Like Because they are doing it, they're not doing it for the person across from them, Mm -hmm. they're doing it for how it makes them feel. Mm -hmm. Like if you've ever volunteered at a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter, you know, you walk out of there, there's few things in this world that make you that happy. Yeah, maybe a medal going across after 26 <laughs> miles, which I haven't experienced, um, can do that for you. But the happiness and fulfillment that you get from literally helping someone. So I think you're right on on that. Here's what I'd like to end with. Okay. Um, Promote whatever it is that you think uh, should be promoted. Your, your book, Body Kindness, yeah. which I said I flipped through. There's so much uh, psychology in there. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I want to uh, you know, celebrate you because I tell coaches all the time that they're psychologists. Yeah. I tell strength coaches, you're a psychologist. Yeah. Parents are psychologists. <laughs> Anyone that thinks... Psychology is just the observing of human behavior. I mean, that's what it is. Um, and, you know, we all need to be psychologists. And I think, I think you are leveraging, you don't have to have a, a three letter, uh, you know, three letters next to your name to say that you're a PhD or a PsyD or a master's in psychology for you to still have knowledge of that field and to see you leverage it and blend it in your space is so refreshing and inspiring. And um, I just think it's, it's awesome. And I'd love to see more blending in our society Mm -hmm. rather than saying, you know, these people are here. These people are this, if we could all take this blending approach, holistic approach, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. I think we'd all be better off for it. Um, But yeah. uh, Where can people find you on social media? I know you have a podcast because we're using your equipment right (laughs) now. Um, Books. Uh, You are you know, I think one of the things that's really cool, we met a couple years ago, um, just to give the backstory and to give you an idea of who Rebecca is. So we're both based out of D.C. I live 10 minutes from here, across the border in Maryland. And uh, I reached out to Rebecca because I was trying to start a group of people that were involved in sports. So I had a strength and conditioning coach. Um, Me, I was talking to you. I was trying to get all these people that were local in the sports community. And you said, sure, let's meet. So we met, had a great conversation. Uh, It was awesome. And then, of course, it fizzled out, as a lot of things do. Um, But then I just reached out to you and said, hey, I'd love to find out what you're up to and get your perspective. So uh, I'm grateful for you to give us the time. And uh, I know we've we've spoken for a while now. I can
1: talk forever. So can I. So uh,
0: I think we both have probably things we need to get to. Uh, Luckily, your kids didn't come in here. So I think we made it. Yes. Uh, quietly. I don't know if they're hiding somewhere. Um, but promote whatever uh, you want, how people can find you and, and where they can learn more sure. about the work that you do.
1: Cool. So, um, yeah, so the book Body Kindness is available wherever books are sold. Um, so I definitely would appreciate that. It is um, it is a lot less money than to see me individually. And so I would highly recommend that to really any any reader who wants to create a better life by being good to themselves Um, besides the book I think the best kind of one-stop shop way to connect better with me is through my website Um, I have a free e-course for body kindness so if you go to bodykindnessbook.com you click on get started and ask you for your email address basically but when you give your email address you'll get a login to get um, a video, my reflection guide, which my clients love because it's a way of tracking mindfully Um, things you're doing for your self-care without calorie counting or logging or you know it's it's very positive things that you can do Um, you can read the first chapter of body kindness as part of that as well Um, and then and and that kind of there's like a course that kind of introduces you to the concepts so you can do it kind of while you're reading Um, if you like it I do um, lots of things for people um, and some are free and some cost um, depending on the level of work that we do Um, but getting on my radar uh, through your email address is going to be the best way. Cause then I will not forget about you that way. And then, you know, you get the links to find me on social everywhere
0: else. So. Sure. Just give us Twitter handle, Instagram. Okay, sure. Come on, give so us Twitter a, Twitter is at
1: <laughs> scritchfield RD. Um, Instagram is just my name, Rebecca scritchfield, all one word. Um, Facebook if you search so I'm one of those people who I Facebook friend whoever invites me as long as you're not a serial killer so if you just search
0: my Serial <laughs> killers please don't friend her
1: <laughs> um, so uh, Rebecca Scritchfield you'll see um, a friend you know where you can friend me but then I also have a um, like a I guess it's a business page right like the like a page and that's called body kindness with Rebecca Scritchfield but if you put my name in probably both will show up um, and what you'll get invited actually to my private Facebook group after you start the e-course. So that's, it's like a super, you can find it on Facebook, but the only way you can get in is if you start the e-course, cause I want to kind of keep it people who they understand what spiral up means. And they, they, they're kind of on board with the idea of, of not dieting, doing body positivity so that it's kind of a little protected area. But I do invite people once you do the e-course.
0: Well, I've got to tell you, uh, First of all, we're going to check the data and make sure there's no serial killers that listen to the show. If you're out there, serial killers, we don't want you listening anymore. We are not taking your vote or your whatever, your, your ears. Um, for me personally, this has been really helpful, really useful. I know this is something that I think about on a regular basis. There's no way getting around eating, right? Like, right. I made a decision at lunch to eat something. I won't get into what it was. Um, and then I'm I'm going to work after this. So, um, you know, do I eat dinner? Uh, do I skip? And I think uh, for every human, those are decisions that we're making on a daily basis. And uh, having some uh, mindfulness around that, it's, it's interesting because coaches and people in the sports profession often are some of the unhealthiest people um, that, that I see. Um, I know I'm around them. And forget the way they look, just... i'm around them i see how they live and Mm -hmm. you know they finish a game then they go out and then they binge and Mm -hmm. because it's stress stress. um and so uh it's just really helpful to hear from you and i'm hoping that a lot of people that are listening to this that are especially in the sport world Mm -hmm. um have some takeaways and i think you're taking Mm -hmm. such a cool approach so thank you so much for the time thanks for the hospitality uh and uh hopefully we'll get together again soon great thanks for having me Thanks again, Rebecca, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed your insight and how you think about your job. And it's just fascinating to me how much she has integrated mindfulness and positive psychology into the work that she is doing. And I think that's something that we can all think about if we are outside of the self-help or the psychology world is how do we integrate the conversations that we're having into our daily life and, and the people around us. And Rebecca has certainly taken some of the best practices in psychology and integrated it and really made it a core piece of what she does when helping people from a nutrition standpoint. So I'm just uh, really excited to meet someone like Rebecca. And it's really refreshing to hear her take and the way that she approaches her job. Uh, feel free to give her a follow on Twitter, follow her on Instagram. She is a content producer. So on her podcast, she's certainly content there our book as we mentioned uh it's it's a different book it's got pictures it's colorful it's bright uh, it's positive uh it's not just going to be a book that you are uh reading just the words there's all kinds of images and powerful images uh to help you on your journey and your journey when it comes to your physique and, and your body uh, once again i appreciate everyone for listening thanks for tuning in I'm trying to bring some diverse people and some interesting people who are really intentional with how they go about their life and how they go about their job. And as we go beyond the surface and really talk with them, I really encourage you to think about how you can be intentional with your life. What can you do to make yourself a better performer, a better person, and just a better version of yourself. So thanks to Rebecca for coming on and thank you all for listening. We will talk again real soon.